Hey, 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 it's me, Katie here. Grab a notebook, add a cuppa, and join me in the sociology staff room. Hello, uh, I'm Katie Tyler. Oh, I've got a thumbs up there as well. Hello, I'm uh, Katie Tyler. Welcome to the sociology staff room. I've got Andrew with us today. Um, familiar face, spoken to you before about, um, we've talked about sociology before in regards to the content and, and different theories, but this time we, we sort of started talking about pedagogy last time. And I said, I want to get you on. I want to talk about it because I know you've got a blog and you sort of comments within with about sociology, but also about pedagogy and sociology. And I would really like to sort of pick your brains around that. I think, I think you've got sort of the teaching profession is something that's always evolving. Um, there's always stuff out there. Uh, there's lots of different sort of fads or things that have been revisited and restructured or reformed. And just love to know your thoughts on them. I know we've sort of at the moment, I feel like what's in vogue, something that's consistent, I suppose, has always been assessment for learning and sort of questioning. They seem to be sort of things that have stayed within sort of the teaching toolbox for a long time. But then we've got obviously emphasis now on sort of retrieval practice. We've got adaptive learning. We've got, oh, what else we've got? Uh, metacognition, uh, emphasis on oracy in the classroom. So there's so much as a wealth. I suppose if you are one new to teaching, but also quite a reflective practitioner, then it can feel sometimes a bit overwhelming, can't it? That you've got all these different sort of strategies that you could use within the classroom. So I suppose my question is to you, as someone that explores it, who writes a blog regularly around sort of teaching and learning, where do you think the sociology teachers are the most useful strategies for us in the classroom and why at the moment? I, I think it, there's various different strategies we can use. And I think there's strategies that we might kind of apply to our subject that you might not find <laughs> in other ones. But at the moment, I think there is something to be said about the current trend with cognitive science although i think it's limited and i think sociology actually offers more to teachers than we can actually segue in with the dominance if i could put it that way of, of cognitive science in education but i think it's worth starting there because if we take every sociology teacher particularly if they're teaching a level we'll look at positivism and you know is sociology a science can it be um, value free and objective and one of the interesting things with that is i think the current evidence-based or evidence-informed practice we have is very much positivistic um, i don't think it always means to be but if we look at kind of using ideas from laboratory experiments so big names i think we'd use at the moment would be dunlosky cognitive scientist we'd have people like rosenshine same principles uh elizabeth and robert bjork cognitive scientists a lot of the studies around retrieval uh spacing and interleaving and even john sweller with like cognitive load theory they are coming largely from laboratory experiments or randomized control trials and therefore i think that whether people are aware of, aware of it or not when people go to things like research head which is fantastic and i wouldn't criticize it is almost operating within a positivism or a positivistic uh, paradigm. And interestingly, one of the kind of like architects, I think of that in the UK, um, uh, Rob Coe, Professor Rob Coe, he's often pinpointed a lecture in 1996 by David Hargreaves, who we all know from sociology as the guy behind deviants in schools, labeling theory and things like that. Um, that he gave a lecture when the teacher training agency was first kind of formed years ago. And in it, he called for a medical model 
of uh, teacher training and developmental practice. He was very critical of education studies at the time. I think he called it aristocratic at one point and, and said that, you know, it's very useless for teachers. And he said, we need to look at medicine. We need to look at the idea of the Lancet. We need to look at the idea that people are going out and finding practical solutions to, to problems in the classroom. And from that, I think we now have a trend in education where evidence based or evidence informed research is de rigueur in schools. And if you go against that, sometimes you could be seen as a bit of a maverick. The irony there is we all know uh, David Hargreaves as writing these amazing ethnographic studies, going into schools, doing qualitative research. And I would argue that what he's kind of formed part of and almost snowballed in the UK is a form of looking at pedagogy that does not allow for qualitative research as much as it should. And one of the things that I do that I often tell people I, I'm training as well is, is go beyond what we are giving you as fundamentals. So the retrieval, the interleaving, et cetera, and think about your subjects and think about specific things. And I would say for every sociology teacher, we could go back to uh, C. Wright Mills and the sociological imagination. And he could rewrite that book and call it the pedagogical imagination. And instead of talking about sociologists, he could talk about teachers. Instead of talking about universities, he could talk about schools. Um, because I think that whole idea of kind of getting uh, pupils to share in life, looking at those connections between personal histories and wider social issues, the kind of biography and history, are really relevant to engaging kids in the classroom to kind of hook them in. And in sociology, as we all, all know, I mean, if you're talking about marketization of the NHS, you can easily ask kids about, you know, have you or your parents ever found it hard to get an appointment? Um, if we're talking about marketization of schools, although it's a bit risky, I get kids to look at the local schools, talk about the ones they think are best and worst than the ones they actually applied for, whether it's us or not, and talk about it that way. So I think, first of all, one of the things I would say sociology can offer um, sociology teachers is pedagogy coming from the discipline itself and even going through the different theories uh, we could look at kind of different ideas it, going back to Durkheim's um, moral education and the idea that we teach specialist skills uh, we teach obviously social solidarity that's very much in vogue with British values and also the idea that school is secondary socialization a microcosm of society and we are kind of in a way doing that in the classroom we're applying in a way uh Durkheim's modus operandi of education in our schools we are teaching the knowledge and skills that can help them in the division of labor um we're also kind of doing the British values and things and teaching the the if we look at the hidden curriculum positively and socializing them to get along with each other um and also to do a kind of softer skills as well which are not quite in vogue with the evidence-informed uh, practice kind of brigade but the idea of collaboration uh, empathy talking to each other and building up Socratic, uh, Socratic dialogue so I think there's a lot to go back with with kind of even Durkheim and applying that and the idea of the kind of like collective conscience and getting kids to understand that they're all in it together working together I, I think something we could take from Durkheim if we were to develop functionalism I am talking quite a lot interrupt me if you need to no. oh no I think it's so interesting that like because obviously I, I, I hear that split and I, I'm interested because I think obviously with the head in sociology we don't you know it, it's not currently in vogue it's mainly I suppose coming from a I suppose psychological scientific background in education practice but then 
you know so much of our experience when we teach the education unit and it makes sense so yeah talk on that's the, that I'm, okay. I'm no worries. I'm I was, I was worried then. yeah um no. but again i'd say as well like if we look at a wider definition of pedagogy is i mean i've got one up here on my screen um yeah we could call it the the act of teaching some people call it a craft c Wright mills actually described teaching as intellectual craftsmanship which i like Okay, you can build in everything. Yes, it's a science, build that in. Yes, it's an art, think about other things and creativity. Yes, it's a craft, so use your kind of knowledge. And although people say we shouldn't use our intuition anymore, I think we ignore the fact that our intuition is normally our subconscious experience anyway. But there's there's a definition from a um, US academic, Lee Shulman here in the Harvard Education Review. And it says pedagogy is adopted by teachers and it shapes their actions, their judgments, teaching strategies, and takes into consideration not only theories of learning, but understandings of the students and their needs, their backgrounds and their interests. And I think, again, you've got C. Wright Mills all over that. Plus you've got that whole kind of social element to it. And I, I even think, I mean, I'm gonna bypass um, Talcott Parsons, but functionalism, which sometimes we, we kind of portray in, I think, A-level teaching as quite a conservative theory, particularly because of the dominance of Parsons. But the whole idea of um, Robert K. Merton and strain theory and those issues around that rebellion, retreatism, ritualism, you know, if we get an understanding of that, I can sometimes see that in the pupils I'm teaching. And I can think, OK, what is it? What aren't they accessing? How can we get ways around that? Uh, you know, why, why is a kid retreatist? I think we get a lot of retreatists in A-level sociology because occasionally, although we do our best with them, the kids are just opting for it because initially they thought it was interesting and they lose interest or they had to do that third A-level or something like that. And even Robert Agnew, um, who kind of develops those uh, Merton's theories when he talks about emotion um, and strain theory and emotion, you know, in some ways that's very much what... Um, you know, I've been taught by behavioural specialists before, ignoring secondary behaviours and that type of thing. So I'd say like functionalism can give us so much. But the, the other thing as well is when I did a, a PGCE in citizenship uh, back in the 1990s, sorry, not 1990s, far too early, 2000s, <laughs> it's all based on like um, Bernard Crick and that new la labour yes. idea of citizenship. Which again is oh, very funny, much... we're just talking about that. <laughs> yeah, I was just literally just talking about that about like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> Well, I, I reckon there's loads of sociology teachers who trained in that and no longer teach citizenship. They probably teach, yeah, there you go. They even teach that history, politics or, or RE. But I think functionism does that. that. That idea of citizenship in many schools that don't do citizenship is either the hidden curriculum, the social solidarity, the British values. Um, but when I was training, my, um, I was at UCL and the guy who taught us was very much into critical pedagogy that doesn't get a look in anymore and as much as i don't want to sound too party political i think the current kind of political climate is that there will be wariness with our current government in entertaining ideas of critical pedagogy however the dfe and ofsted produced the uh, dfe produced a subject report for re um last year and it did actually include critical pedagogy because it is relevant where if we ignore the Marxian element to it and in citizenship trying to get kids engaged in politics and understanding their role as a citizenship a citizen I think there's an element there where you could say critical pedagogy is really important and that's again Marxism can Marxism inform our teaching and of course that might send shivers down some policy makers 
backbones and things like that, that all these left-wing teachers and things. But I think if we look at the idea that, you know, uh, Pierre, uh, Paolo Ferreira, which most people would know, we don't quite teach him on the, the sociology curriculum, but he is building on the idea of a, a banking model of education. So the Bowles and Gintist idea that we're just kind of feeding the children what they need to hear. And perhaps as much as there's a lot of merit in E.D. Hirsch and Daisy Christodoulou and their ideas on knowledge and what Michael Gove has brought in by making a more knowledge-based curriculum and Nick Gibb as well, I would argue perhaps at times we've got to remember that knowledge is important, but what are we going to get the kids to do with it? Um, and I think that idea of creating a critical consciousness and actually using that material to think about how can I make the world a better place, if we ignore the fact that it initially Paolo Ferreira is ideological, we can build in that citizenship, that idea about what are you going to do with sociology? Are you going to be a committed sociologist? Um, and, and those ideas. But then we could develop it even more. I mean, if we look at, um, I think it's uh, Lewis and Flint and Slurries, 2002, they were kind of academics who write about um, critical pedagogy. And they say, yeah, we do want children, particularly in a subject like sociology, and it might not apply to all subject areas, but we want to dis disrupt the commonplace. We want them to question why is society like this? So critical pedagogy can be very good at asking them questions about the status quo and those type of things. Um, integrating multiple, multiple viewpoints. So again, there's lots of different questions out there. There's lots of different views. Um, I'm not adverse to using ideas like intersectionality and bell hooks, which is also critical pedagogy. Focusing on social and political issues, they argue we should be doing in schools, but we, we do that in sociology. We don't need to worry about overstepping the mark because it's part of our subject. Um, and then also maybe encouraging the children to take their studies in whatever view they have, whether they sympathise with left-wing centrist or right-wing views and doing something else with it, okay? So like on that element. So I think critical pedagogy coming from Marx gives us a lot to, to think about in terms of teaching and learning and school life. And then if we look at Marx even further, um, although he was never a Marxist and he was beyond labels, Pierre Bourdieu, I think his idea of cultural capital, we know that Ofsted have used that, arguably misused it. Um, the idea that even today there was a study, uh, there's a new book by John Cap, uh, Education, I forgot the guy who's written it. Is it Lee Elliott Major? Um, on cultural capital and working class boys. We know there's lots of issues around cultural capital and other ethnicities, but the, the key thing is that we're getting kids come into our school with very academic um, institutions. You've got your Howard Becker ideal type. We need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of how we're judging them. Um, we need to make sure we can make the curriculum accessible to everybody and not put them off. Be wary of habitus and symbolic violence. I think that's key as well. So not kind of like underestimating the importance of those kind of middle-class values to the middle-class curriculums we teach. That's not to say that that's a problem, but we need to address them and think about the children. Um, mild acts of symbolic violence, so I guess we could say, towards kind of working-class ideas and occupations. We have to be careful there. Um, and then, of course, the whole idea of building cultural capital. And over the last few years, I think Alex uh, Quigley's got a lot of kind of credit, quite rightly, for his book, The Vocabulary Gap. But when I read that, I just thought Basil Bernstein all the way through it. Like A-level students have been learning this stuff for the last three decades. Mm. Um, he, does, he does reference him. He does reference him, to be fair, as well. So you've got your elaborative codes. You've got your, um, obviously, issue around restricted codes. And I think schools are doing that. My school's got um, Oracy as part of its school development plan. 
I'm sure a lot of schools have. So that's a key area as well. I think at the moment you've got some politicians talking about that. So Tony Blair's old um, spin master, I've forgotten his name, Alistair Campbell has recently been in the news. Yeah, we need to get kids arguing more and doing stuff like that. But that whole thing around kind of oracy, I I think, is there. If we're sociology teachers, we think about the application. So Marxism can offer us a lot. And I think where we really get into it with pedagogy is social action theory. Um, I'd wait for you to come to them because I think this is very refreshing. I feel like I know I've just absorbed, but I feel like it's just, it's not, I say it's weird because I teach this every lesson and I'm lots of other year, you know, teaching the education now, the year 12 teachers. And on one hand, you know, this, the words, the two words I wrote while you were speaking were, I don't even know where I put it, process or outcome or both, because I feel like from you talking all the sort of thing that's in, on trend at the moment is all about the outcome, like focusing on that, you know, grades and the outcome rather than the process and what else is the purpose of education. And it isn't, obviously we want students to get grades and we want them to walk out so they can have choices, but it, it's more than that. And I think, goodness, we sit there in the sociology lessons, we stand there in the sociology lesson, we talk about, which we're gonna to come to interactionism or Marxist theory and about the importance of being aware of cultural capital, language codes, uh, putting status on across habitus, all this sort of thing. But the emphasis on education currently isn't that. It's all about sort of almost like the last 10% of the journey. Like as I think about like a student as an iceberg, we only look at that sort of last bit, but actually to have all, to be aware of all those other things can only help us inform us on the last bit. But yes, please talk about interactions. I mean, I'm excited, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, no worries, no worries. Well, I, I think social action theory, again, it, it can do so much. Just going back to what you said about, you know, the the idea that maybe what we're getting from evidence-informed practice is, is quite limited. Uh, Research Ed, which is a great uni- uh, organisation, I don't want to criticise it in that sense, but being there in this September, there seemed to be a bit of um, wariness about how teachers are jumping on evidence-informed practice and that particularly if we take retrieval practice so many schools have implemented that um, but schools are now struggling with the resilience and the independent learning that comes on the end of it uh, and of course there is metacognition and guided learning but it's like people have seen what uh, retrieval practice can do for memory and retrieval but there's other things as well we aren't getting children to do and I think in some ways um, Social action theory and some of the other theories can build quite well into metacognition in a way because we are getting the children to understand how they can help each other and how they can kind of have that resilience going through. But with social action theory, one of the things I don't think a lot of the kind of cognitive science work on memory teaches kids is how to be empathetic. And of course, that's another element of school. If we take that wider idea of pedagogy, we are teaching these children other skills. And of course, Faber, uh, empathetic understanding, Verstehen, if I pronounce that right, I've always wondered that over the last 20 years. Um, and that whole kind of ethical neutrality of a teacher as well. So some people might listen to this and say, oh dear, here's a teacher. He's just been talking about how wonderful Marxism is and Paula Ferreira, this is all left-wing stuff. Well, Weber says we should be neutral um, on the way we teach things. But Again, I think if Faber was around now, I'd wonder what he'd think of evidence-informed practice as it is in the country, because he had a big concern with bureaucratic rationalization or rationalism. And in some ways, that whole idea of kind of uh, how we interpret 
interpret it evidence and also just the kind of how that bureaucratic rationalization or technocracy kind of can stifle and hinder creativity and innovation and one of the things i would say is that with the uh, initial teacher training core framework that trainees do now and the early career framework which in many ways are very good but again they're all based on evidence-informed practice cognitive science where is the innovation the creativity the the development of critical skills which some influencers on x um, and twitter have kind of yeah, why do we need to teach kids critical thinking skills? Well, I, th I think Weber might question that, question where those values are. Um, and again, you know, e even taking Weber and getting children to understand their place in the classroom, you bring in symbolic interactionism and you've got the idea of rules. Um, again, a lot of school rules are quite explicit. They're in policies, they're listed on walls. But a lot of the rules we have are through interaction. Most children learn to be quiet, not because of a sanction in place, but because of the way the teachers looked at them, which again, symbolic interaction. And I think there's a lot there we can kind of make mileage out of as teachers and think about um, on that rules and routines. But I think if anyone um, could kind of, I think if there's any avenue to take social action theories and develop a pedagogy, it would be taking Goffman and um, dramaturgical analysis. I, I actually think that could be a pedagogy in itself. And there's two reasons for there's that. There's a book for you I there. Never... There's a book there for you, Andrew. <laughs> I, think, I don't know. I, I have actually been to see if someone's done that, and no one has. No, no one's written that. Um, and I don't know why, because Goffman is like, like the third most cited person in the humanities after Bourdieu and, I don't know, Giddens, I think. And I am thinking, well, why, why is he not used in education as much as he should be? I mean... There's an empirical base there. Yes, it's qualitative, but there's an awful lot of work. And elsewhere in the social sciences and humanities, there's so much work based on Goffman. But if we take kind of dramaturgical analysis, I remember a head teacher once sympathising with her staff. And she said, look, I do get it. It must have been November or February, those times of year where we're all kind of ready for our oh, holiday. Nice. Yeah. And she said, look, I get it. You act, um, you know, you've got six lessons a day, all these kids come in, you perform for every one of them. And she got it right, we, we are acting, we're always keeping up this pretense. We got this part two of our professional standards where we cannot really tell the kids what we really think. Or when we phone a parent and they're being difficult with us, we can't tell them what we really think. So we have to do that. And if we go through kind of the key things, I mean, I, I did write a blog on this actually. And I quoted Frank McCourt, the guy who wrote uh, Teacher Man and Angela's Ashes. And he, he wrote in his book, and this book's got nothing to do with sociology, but his reflections on teaching. He said, in the high school classroom, you're a drill sergeant, a rabbi, a shoulder to cry on, a disciplinarian, a singer, a low-level scholar, a clerk, a referee, a clown, a counsellor, a dress code enforcer, a conductor, an apologist, a philosopher, a collaborator, a tap dancer, a politician, a therapist, a fool, a traffic cop, a priest, a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, an uncle, an aunt, a bookkeeper, a critic, a psychologist, and the last straw. He's so true. And I think that's where um, Goffman comes in, because if we take his drama, um, dramaturgical analysis, he talks about impression management. So we can only really kind of get on if we have this authority or status with the kids we can't expose ourselves yes it does happen but we've got to try and avoid crying in front of the children if we don't know the answer we got to seem like we know it and 
not not lie to the kids and give them a false answer, but wing it in some way to give them the confidence that we can still lead them. Um, we can't lose our temper. And it's when he kind of uses the idea of performance. So he talks about that. Um, you know, everybody else is our audiences and we have to perform. I think there's so much of that that goes into part two of the teacher standards. When I do um, training with um, some of our ITTs in the Watford area, I do ask them, and I, I almost got in trouble for swearing last time, so I'm not going to swear. But I asked, <laughs> I asked the trainees, those that have talked so far, how many of you felt like telling a kid to F off? And like reluctantly, 50% put their hands up. And it's like, have you? And they're like, well, of course not, we can't. So we do have this performance. And then, of course, Goffman talks about your front. So you are putting on this front. You, you have to go in. You have to have that professionalism around you. You've got to have the appearance. So that goes with it as well. So Goffman is talking about, you know, how you dress. So, you know, no, none of us want to wear these clothes, really. Um, I want to come in, a, I don't know, a Miles Davis T-shirt and shorts in the summer, but I have to wear a suit and tie. Why? Partly it's a social norm. Secondly, we've got to look at the business for the kids. We're trying to enforce uniform with them. So that's the way. Then Goffman talks about the manner. So we always kind of developing. I might go and watch football in the pub and I'm going to be a very different person than if I've got a group of year sevens. If I teach the year 13s, I'm going to be slightly different in front of them in that. And of course, our roles and responsibilities. I put on a role as a head of house, but then I also put on a role in front of my year 13 students who know me completely differently through, through those lessons. So I think he's so right there. He talks about teams. Um, and again, some people listening might be on SLT. You know, there's things, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to, who cares? Yeah, things are said on SLT that are within the team. You, you can't go and say it elsewhere. And it's the same the other way around. And he's very kind of, I think, when he talks about arguments on teams and you have those real disagreements about things. And then because of your performance, you have to go and put on that front and have a united role afterwards. That's fantastic for departments, teachers, disagreements. You then have to go and be united in front of the kids and the parents. Um, again, he's right. And then of course, regions, regions of the school. So, you know, you can be more relaxed in your sociology classroom. You might be less relaxed with your year 10s. In the corridor, you might be the disciplinarian walking down. In the staff room, you might be lighthearted and bantering with colleagues because that's back room. So again, Goffman for me, I think is, is really important. There would be no room, I think, for Goffman at or with some of the organisations promoting evidence-based practice. They'd say, well, it's all based on qualitative data. You know, you've got to do this, you've got to teach kids. Um, as much as I like the guy, you've got to use Tom Bennett's um, running the room, none of this stuff. But I had a, a colleague a few years ago who was struggling with issues around some, some of this um, kind of performance and things. And we use Goffman as a kind of tool to talk about his behavior in front of the kids and things like that. Um, and it really worked. We, we both got a lot out of it in that development. Um, and the guy came, brilliant teacher, got excellent results, uh, very popular with the kids. But I think Goffman actually did kind of help us as a kind of not only an analytical tool, but if we go back to Weber and ideal types, the way he kind of conceptualizes all of these different things was really helpful in developing professionalism. So again, um, I, yeah, social action theory, there's so much there. Um, I'd also say feminism can tell us something as well. I mean, it's awkward me saying this perhaps as a, as a male teacher, but there's a number of feminists who write about this. Alan Walker and Webb, um, free academics who produced a paper on a feminist pedagogy and they talk about 
again, very much like critical pedagogy, teachers need to make sure that they reaffirm the ability um, of genders in the classroom, ensure that there's empowerment, uh, building community amongst um, different gender groups, privilege and voice. And I think if we look at stuff by Becky Francis in the past on boys and how controlling they can be in conversations and things, I think it's important. Respecting uh, uh, personal choice and personal values and challenging uh, traditional assumptions. I think they're all relevant for the classroom still. Um, and I think we, we can kind of base that. But even, I mean, thinking about pedagogy and how we develop children, in my school, we are still dominated in sociology. It's not a problem, by girls. So you walk into a sociology classroom or a psychology classroom or my RE classroom, and they're all female. English literature is the same. Whereas you go down the road to further maths and other subjects, it's not. So something maybe pedagogical lower down the school, we're, we're not quite getting that right. And I think that maybe there's, there's an element of feminism there. And I think also bearing in mind Bell Hooks, whose book, Teaching to Transgress, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use it. It's a bit like Paolo Ferreira. Their methods of delivering maybe knowledge content and perhaps more with the cognitive science, but the awareness of voice and the awareness of intersectionality in the classroom and the idea of perhaps making sure you are aware of those differences. Um, I'm not afraid to, to use the idea of privilege. Um, I know I might, I, I might refer to myself as having white privilege. I know that a lot of white people don't have privilege, but at the same time, me and my context where I live, definitely. And just being aware of those, having that diversity, making sure we we have in sociology, and I think you had a podcast um, back in July, didn't you, on this issue, which I listened to. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was about um, ethnicity in the classroom and how it was about equality and diversity in the classroom. Is that one? I'm trying to think now which one it was about. Was it yeah, it was really good. Yeah. Yes, I'm trying to think of the lady um, who did it. I did record her name somewhere. Um, but I, I thought that was really interesting because I, I think that's where kind of difference feminism might come in and, and the, the person you had on your podcast I'm not sure what their view of that would be but also in particular bell hooks teaching trans transgress I think that is really important that idea that we're not only aware of the different voices in the class but we're very much aware of our positioning in that class and of course people might I think there's a reaction to that at the moment um and people would say well that sounds very woke but it's not for me it's kind of common sense um so, so it, it is important. And we even see it the other way around with gender. So the stuff, um, whether, again, people are very critical of him, Tony uh, Swell and his, his idea of feminization of education. But that, that's an element there. We, we know that that's a case lower down the school. We struggle with boys reading. So I think a feminist pedagogy is still relevant as well. We, we need to factor those things in, um, in every way we work, even microaggressions and how we might refer to different people. Um, so I think there's a lot there. Lastly, and of course, there's so much we you could go on about, but you know, postmodernism, uh, maybe with lockdown and teaching online, that was the harbinger. Like, what were we doing there? Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not sure about um, postmodernism. I think if we go down that route, we're going to end up with learning styles. Um, and personalised learning. Maybe that's unfair. But I guess there is an element there where we now need to be aware of the world we're in because, you know, we're all dealing with kids who listen to Andrew Tate, uh, Great Replacement Theory. I've had children um, 
be wary of what we say, but I'm sure it's a case of cross schools uh, accuse Bill Gates of you know being involved in things that he's not through conspiracy theories and Joe Biden and things, and we challenge it. But I think the, the, the idea that we live in a post-truth world makes our job even harder but more important. So we might not want to have a postmodern strategy of teaching, and we might be wary of that. But I think we need to be aware of what postmodernism says about the world we live in, uh, particularly um, what the kids are hearing and what they could be bringing to other conversations. And I think it's worth teachers being aware of that so they can have that heightened sense of correcting misconceptions um, on that. So again, I, for me, like we've covered all of the main theories. We haven't done the new right. Um, I guess we could do the new right competition. Or they? Yeah, competition. I, I suppose that was yeah. the. I mean, I've literally I've kept quiet because I feel like I'm just taking that all in. It just, it's just so refreshing. I think it's for the first time in a long time that I've had a conversation about pedagogy, which is not about outcomes in a sort of from I suppose the new right would quite like these sort of more cognitive approaches because it sort of filters into those measured outcomes and therefore that creates that competition. That. Yeah. There is um, Stephen Bull, again, everyone's going to know him, who, who teaches A-level mm. sociology, but in the education debate, I mean, he's he's an emeritus professor now, and he's really interested in reading his things he publishes. He's still writing papers. A lot of them seem to be around Foucault and education, but he published a book in 2000, uh, well, I think some time ago, but it was republished in 2021 called The Education Debate. And he raises the issue of teachers becoming technicians. So we are basing um, a lot of education on policy, policy likes, positivism, because it's neutral and it allows things to get through uncritically. And he does, and this is not me talking, but his view of that is you get the neoliberal teacher. So you've got this idea of a neoliberal teacher who's a mere technician using teaching strategies that are very uncritical and almost doing the banking model of education. Um, obviously for Ball, that's a concern maybe for some new right theorists that's not a concern they're teaching the kids what they need to know the skills they need to go to go out and work in the economy be it neoliberal or anything else teachers follow the best evidence and fill up those mugs i guess yeah it's, it's so but the thing is i suppose going back because i know you spoke about postmodernism and i was thinking well the, the world is so uncertain so on one hand, that cognitive model potentially does have its limitations because the currency they're walk, walking away with, that sort of very much outcome measured, quantitative outcome for them, and they may not have all the, or may not say not have, but a limited amount of other skills, soft skills, that, that other skills that can be developed through your pedagogic practice, uh, actually may best suit the uncertain future that we have, where, you know, those, a lot of the jobs that we haven't, in the future will don't currently exist right now and so that we have to have students that are adaptable but i also was thinking with some of those cognitive uh, retrieval practices etc etc they wouldn't work if you didn't have those relationships so thinking about you know the teacher-student relationship which we talk about a lot in in sociology and and how that has an impact on their learning so i think about labeling theories you talked about impression management um you know all those types of things that if that wasn't in place effectively and having empathy and all those things that go on in the classroom and getting our students to work in that way as well well actually we wouldn't be able to do any retrieval practice potentially or very limited retrieval because kids wouldn't be willing to take risks in their like 
getting it wrong sort of thing or getting really detailed in their metacognition because they're worried about the fit. So actually there's a lot of groundwork in which the sociology practice, the pedagogy is really, really important. And I was, I was funny because you didn't talk about um, Rosenthal and Jacobson and I always come back to that as well sometimes in my head, you know, what do we think of the students, how are they internalise in what we think of them, whether that's subconscious, conscious through what we say in our body language and how that ha has an impact on their learning, their sense of self. Um, and obviously that then my link to like Cooley and the self looking glass. But I was thinking to myself, like there's so much that goes on in that classroom that isn't just quantifiable. Um, and actually a lot of that isn't quantifiable because of the fact that it's about those relationships that go on. Um, and we've, we've spent so we spend a lot of time on retrieval questioning etc etc but like you said right at the beginning actually it's really important to know your students and have those relationships as well and be aware of their backgrounds either from a marxist perspective or feminist perspective or intersexuality which we don't talk about much as much as we you know, i say we i say sociologists we do but in teacher learning practices it's not it's not in vogue at the moment what why do you think it isn't in vogue out of interest i i do i, I mean I, i'm trying not to be overly political but I don't think it's about party pol politics is but I, I would say I don't want to criticize people but a couple uh, there's a few things I've read in the last 10 years that kind of raised my eyebrow David Didow who in many ways is a very good writer writes a lot on education he wrote a book called what if everything you taught had been wrong I think it was and it was a critique of teacher training and I read his kind of um chapter on methodology and it did seem to have a slant against qualitative methodologies. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. What's your background, David? Where have you come from? Where have you read this? I shouldn't say it, but you're an English teacher. Maybe your degrees are in English. Where have you picked up that information? It was the same with Daisy Christodoulou, who's very influential, and she's very influential with policymakers coming from E.D. Hirsch. Um, I mean, both Gove and Gibb have, have name-checked her. In her book, again, very good. I think it's worth reading the, the Seven Myths of Education. I think, I don't know if she's being disingenuous, but there's a bit of a disservice, I think, to things like Paolo Ferrero. She's not talking about the context. She's talking about kind of knowledge. Whereas, yeah, Paolo Ferrero criticised that, but he was dealing with adult learners in very different situations. Um, he was writing at a time um, in Brazil when it is in a very different political uh, situation too. And I think there's a lot of that going on. Um, she also criticizes Guy Claxton, the guy behind kind of building learning power. Now, for me, I would marry up a lot of what Krista Dulu would argue we should be doing with bits and bobs of Claxton. I mean, I think that, that there, but she says like, you know, Claxton's not right here and things are, are wrong, but we forget that Claxton was a professor at Bristol University these things are not set out of, 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 of nowhere. This is not made up empirical evidence. But I think policy has gone along with that kind of um, direction. And there are a few things that are said now that are not quite true. And it, we, we move on to perhaps um, my, my own MP is Oliver Dowden. And he did a, a talk at the, uh, I think it's the, I can't remember the name of the institute in the US, uh, Henry Jackson Institute it might be. No, not that one. That's a. Um, anyway, he gave, he gave a big talk, and he basically said teachers can't talk about things such as critical race theory or um, 
white privilege is fact and things like that. And I thought, well, that's interesting because we do talk about that in sociology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it is, it is relevant. Oh, sorry, it's the Heritage Foundation he spoke at. And one of the things is we don't teach it as facts, but it is a debate. But when he said, and other people, uh, Catherine Burwell Singh's been big on this, mm-hmm. critical race theory, bad. But think about people like David Gilburn. Um, we're not going to write David Gilburn off. He's like a professor at um, the University of Birmingham. Um, his papers are heavily well researched. There is a lot more to critical race theory. And I think what we've got is a reaction against perceived wokeness. That's kind of not just in terms of perhaps how we teach content and what content we include, but also perhaps the strategies we use. So some strategies are seen as perhaps a bit more fuzzy than others. Um, Without really thinking about the qualitative evidence behind that or whether they still have a place within everything else. So yes, there are some things that are debunked and we shouldn't go towards. Learning styles is the one that's always kind of... Yeah, and it, I mean, again, Research Head, fantastic organisation. I've spoken there a lot, and I, I think people should go there. But every year, people go, oh, learning styles, learning styles, learning styles. Let's move on from learning styles. Okay, yes, a few schools might do it. I think there's a school I came across in Devon recently that were doing De Bono's thinking hats. But not many people are. But it doesn't mean that Bloom's taxonomy is completely redundant. Um, it doesn't mean perhaps that solo taxonomy is completely redundant. These things haven't necessarily been disproved. It's just at the moment, they're not being championed as much as other things. Um, So I I think there is this kind of reaction, perhaps, against progressive education. And that includes strategies and content, as I just said. And a lot of things are being put into that. It's even recently, um, and again, people that I respect, but people like Tom Bennett have been questioning the idea of 21st century skills and things like that. That goes back to a paper, I believe, by MIT um, done about 15 years ago, where they did say that 20th century skills are needed. Um, My brother used to work for American Express at senior level. He said, well, schools aren't producing the things we need. I don't think it's as simple as 20th century skills are kind of claptrap and nonsense. I think businesses are actually asking for them. The MIT research was done with major US businesses. I think we've just got a lot of false dichotomies. There's a, so much good in cognitive science and evidence-informed practice that we can bring in, but we seem to be throwing the baby out of the bathwater with saying, that, if that it's was a, not... That was the sentence that was in my head yeah. as, as you were talking. I was like, you, you know, I think they, they work in tandem. Um, from, what, from listening to you um, speak so clearly about it that you know, that you don't have to have one with necessarily the other and actually they might support each other. But I feel like it's such a long time since we've I've had that conversation. I've had that conversation in my head. I have it with my students when we go through the education unit. Um, and actually, when you, when you, on a micro level, you speak to students, the thing that matters is if a teacher cares, they care. You know, on a very basic level, if a teacher has no passion for their subject and they're going through the process of very technical and it's all about the outcomes, but they care about the outcomes and not, necessarily it's not they don't care about the student that's not the case but it's that idea of you know is that old thing that students always care we all care we all care when someone else cares as well we can't not care and I think yes it's not as quantifiable how do you measure someone's passion but it I think for students that they have that buy-in if the, the teacher has that buy-in and, and they genuinely care about that student where they're in like their interest oh like how was your hockey match at the weekend or whatever it might be um 
you know, that's really important as well as, you know, the ret retrieval practice of the modeling you might do in the lesson as well. Um, but yeah, that's exactly what I was, I was thinking as you were saying, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no. I, I think that's quite good because it takes us almost all the way back to where we started with Seawright Mills. Mm. Because Seawright Mills is talking about obviously your sociological imagination. And in a sense, you're talking about pedagogies that get teachers to care, to show they care. And if we take a teacher that, and I'm hoping most people who are listening to this love sociology, and I think sociology does have teachers that love the subject. If we can have that passion and that sociological imagination, we can then ooze that and the kids can absorb it. Um, talking about, obviously, the importance of things. I'm not against bringing in snippets and anecdotes. You've got to be careful kids don't use them in the exams. But just <laughs> say, look, you know, this is me in the real world. This is what I think. This Well, not necessarily what I think, but this has happened to me. Can't you see how that relates to this theory or that theory? Um, and I think that's really good because then the kids can see that and they can develop their own sociological imagination. So I definitely think, in a way... And I, maybe I'm wrong here, but sometimes the evidence-informed practice kind of paradigm we have now is quite 2D. And I think some of the other things we've been talking about makes teaching more 3D. Um, we, we've got those other elements that keep everything together and, and move mm. students along. I'm just wondering, and I've not got any evidence of this, and now wondering if there's, I'm sure it, there isn't just a correlation for this, but I'm going to say it out loud because I don't even know where it's just a food for thought, really. I wonder how much that emphasis on that sort of quite, I don't know, I don't, I don't mean it in a clinical way. I don't, that's not supposed to be, it's a crit, criticism of the sort of the way that teachers go. But I wonder how much that's having an impact on the numbers of teachers leaving the profession, because I know that is a concern. You know, there's, you know, if you've got all that passion and you want to sort of, and it doesn't fit into that, that box of like this process, um, and you're getting measured against that. I wonder how that, what the correlation between that is and teachers leaving the profession. I think there's lots of things that there's long hours. It's the, you know, lack of potential pay for people. There's lots of them, but I wonder if there's anything in that as well. Just as you were thinking, and I was thinking, oh gosh, imagine that's all you've trained. Because I think I've trained in both sides of of, of education, right? And about the teachers that are coming through and this, the emphasis on that more quantitative approach can, for some, be quite stifling, I'd imagine, especially if you've got a background in the arts or something like that. I, I think there is evidence out there. Um, I think we can look at, there's a couple, and we wouldn't use them in teaching sociology uh, per se, but but Gert Biesta, uh, who's a kind of, not sociologist, but an educationist, uh, talks about teaching being a craft and the wider kind of issues around it. And he's written a number of papers, 2007, uh, he wrote What Works Won't Work. And that was kind of an answer and a rebuke to the David Hargreaves, uh, Robert Slavin kind of use of bringing in this medical model. Um, and he's kind of updated that 2010. And if anyone goes on ResearchGate, there's papers going up now. And there's another um, What's his name, sorry? There. So they, does the name check that again? Uh, uh, yes, sir. So G-E-R-T, Gert, and then Biesta mm -hmm. is B-I-E-S-T-A. And he's very much a response to that. And the other person I think is quite useful is Mark Priestley. Um, he's based at Stirling University, and he, he's done a lot of work in on the Scottish curriculum, but he's interested in teacher agency. Mm. Um, and I've got a big yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So um, a bit like him and BS to talk about how, you know, you've got open and closed systems 
and th their work goes very in depth. There's lots of concepts, and they, I think, in a way, particularly the the latter there, Mark Priestley's working towards a, a critical realism. If we wanted to get really deep, but what they're saying is that if if you've got teaching is an open system, there's so many variables. Um, even Aristotle recognised that in teaching. Um, so many things can happen. If you start to prescribe a lot and you say teaching works in this way and you must do it this way, you do create quite a closed system and that can be become very restrictive um, on that one. And it can limit it. And people will question, why am I coming into the teaching profession if I have to do it this way? That whole idea of the inspirational teacher everyone imagines uh, when they're asked about who is their favourite teacher at school, in some ways is maybe being pushed aside. Um, however, there's also an acknowledgement that the system can be too open. Um, and teachers still need structures. So I think Priestley's work is quite interesting because he talks about he's not he's not basing his work on Giddens per se. It's more Margaret Archer. But what he talks about is the kind of relationship between structure and agency, far more depth than we do at A two or or Year thirteen. But it's there, um, and how the idea that perhaps structures that are kind of prescribed or or put in place by um, at a macro level are then kind of mitigated by groups lower down. But he does suggest that things operate best, particularly with his work with the curriculum, if you have voice and space for teacher agency. So you don't give them all of the agency, otherwise we'd all be doing what we want, the kids would be learning nothing. So you do need a lot of prescription there, but we also need an element of freedom to choose the strategies we teach with, to understand the cohorts we teach with, to adapt the curriculum in the way we need to. Um, and so therefore, what you said, I think there is a, quite a few papers out there. Oh, I'm, um, I'm going to take them out, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, such interesting stuff. I could speak to you forever. And I, I, as you know, it's just so refreshing because I think, you know, especially if you're in a small department or you're, you might be a lone teacher, just having those, could you teach it in the subject? And so it's a bit of an ironic place to be in, especially when you're sort of teaching, teaching student relationships. Uh, professional relationships where you're talking about policy or um, you're talking about sort of marketization, privatization of education. It's a bit of a weird inside out experience where you're sort of, you're doing it and then you realize you're part of the system yeah. as well. So um, it's so refreshing to just have those conversations that from a sociological perspective, which is what, I, I, do you know what? I know we had, a, we had, we emailed and we talked about it beforehand, but it was, it was, sounds really backhanded compliment, but better than I anticipated. I thought we might be going yeah, through the motions in, in regards to sort of the, the current stuff that's in vogue. And actually, I got more more than I bargained for, which is amazing. Thank you. Like, literally amazing. No, My brain's like, it's really lovely to speak to you. And um, thank you. Thank you for being in the profession. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. It's nice, it's nice to be you. back. Brilliant. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Yes. Enjoy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Sociology Stuff Room is brought to you by tutor to you Sociology. Find us at tutor2u.net forward slash sociology or follow us on Twitter at tutor2usoc or Instagram at tutor2usoc. You can also join our very lively Facebook groups for sociology teachers. See you soon.